0: Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, as we record the show on December 7th, the news from Gaza continues horrific. The Washington Post is reporting, citing Gaza Health Ministry reports, that Israel's continued assault throughout the region has killed at least 350 people in the past 24 hours bringing the death toll of the Israeli military campaign launched after the October 7th attack by Hamas that killed a reported 1,200 people to more than 17,000. In this country, Columbia University has suspended two student groups protesting in support of Palestinian human beings and human rights, though the official message couldn't specify which policies exactly had been violated. There are many important and terrible things happening in the world right now. From fossil fuel companies working to undo any democratic restraints on their ability to profit from planetary destruction, to drug makers who have devastated the lives of millions of people using the legal system to say money actually can substitute for accountability, to an upcoming presidential election that is almost too much to think about – and a Beltway Press Corps acting like it's just another day. But the devastation of Gaza and the vehement efforts to silence anyone who wants to challenge it, and the failure of those efforts, as people nevertheless keep speaking up, keep protesting, is the story for today. Sonia Meyerson Knox is communications director of Jewish Voice for Peace. We talked with her this week on Counterspin. And that's coming up, but first, a very quick look back at some recent press. The New York Times asked in a recent headline, Can Carbon Capture Live Up to the Hype? The article's subhead seemed to offer an affirmative response. Quote, The technology to capture and bury carbon dioxide has struggled to ramp up and has real limits but experts say it could play a valuable role, close quote. But what's the evidence? The article mostly described the failures of expensive carbon capture projects to even get off the ground. The only reference to that supposedly valuable role linked to three studies or reports. The titles of two were Carbon Capture, Too Little, Too Late, Too Slow, It's No Panacea, and Heavy dependence on carbon capture and storage, highly economically damaging, says Oxford Report. A third, seemingly more optimistic report came from the International Energy Agency, but that agency's latest report actually offered the opposite message. Its executive director explained, Oil companies' plan to hit net zero by increasing production and capturing emissions is an illusion based on implausibly large amounts of carbon capture. Well, luckily for those companies, the New York Times headline writers are here to keep that illusion going. You're listening to Counterspin. Counterspin is produced by the National Media Watch Group, FAIR. Despite the official contention that civilian deaths in the Gaza Strip are in keeping with those of other military campaigns, a recent New York Times report acknowledged that actually, quote, Israel's assault is different, close quote. Even a conservative estimate of the reported Gaza casualty figures, the Times said, shows that the rate of death during Israel's assault has few precedents in this century. Listeners know that the response to the current violence on Gaza, the massive killings and displacement, what response you believe in has to do with your understanding of what's happening and why. And that depends on who you're hearing from, who you're told to believe. Who gets to speak is always a key question about U.S. news media coverage of what we call foreign policy. But that doesn't just mean which officially credentialed policy experts, but which human beings, which communities get to not just be quoted, but shape the conversation. And now, as always, U.S. corporate media's insistence that power speaks and those affected get to comment, maybe, is trying to win the day. But if that insistence is failing, it's to do with the work of our guest, and I'm sure she would say many others. Sonia Meyerson Knox is Communications Director of Jewish Voice for Peace. She joins us now by phone from Philadelphia. Welcome to Counterspin, Sonia Meyerson Knox.
1: Thank you so much. It's so great to be here. Well, I don't
0: think New York Times columnist Brett Stevens is himself especially worthy of respectful consideration here. Ten years ago, he was saying... The Palestinian saga has gotten awfully boring, hasn't it? Uh, Everyone else in the region is changing. Only the Palestinians remain trapped in ideological amber. How long can the world be expected to keep staring at this 4 million-year-old mosquito? Okay, but the Times op-ed page is still looked to as a measure of kind of the range of acceptable opinion. So it's meaningful what Stevens does in this recent piece where he states, on October 8th, Jews woke up to discover who our friends are not. He cites Jewish Voice for Peace as being used as Jewish beards, interesting language, for aggressive anti-Semites. And he essentially suggests that we can maybe dismiss The views of Black Lives Matter, because one of them didn't immediately denounce Hamas, and we should side-eye academic and corporate diversity efforts, because they're also sites of anti-Semitism. We've seen it elsewhere, this notion that, well, Jewish people put out lawn signs after George Floyd's murder, so it's unfair and it's revealingly biased that all black people don't support Israel's assault on Gaza, and indeed the occupation itself. It reflects a sad and cynical view of coalitional social movements as transactional, as favor trading. Your work represents a different vision and understanding. Can you talk about that and and how you engage or if you engage that transactional view of justice movements?
1: The thing about Fred Stevens and so much, unfortunately, of the New York Times opinion pages is that, in fact, they are the ones who, I would argue, are um, historical anomalies stuck in amber. That what we are seeing yet again, as we have seen so many times in recent history, is the fact that people who are believing in progressive causes, who want the world to be a better place, are already understanding and committed to a vision of the world that is intersectional, where our struggles are absolutely connected. The belief that none of us are free unless all of us are free. It's not just a slogan. It's absolutely I think the only way that any of us are going to have the future that we're trying to build. And, and so to have um, to have the paper of record continually disparage some movement. And I would put Jewish Voice for Peace's work um, as anti-Zionist Jews, along with the much, much larger and rapidly growing Palestine solidarity movement globally, but to put all of that somehow always on the exception and to castigate anybody who chooses to stand with an incredibly moral and just cause, simply because one prefers to defend the actions of the state of Israel and a government which is, advocating for genocide is just utterly appalling. I am astounded every time the New York Times and most of the corporate media does this. The, the, the way that some causes are allowed to be lifted up and progressive and other causes are just are not, not because they're not presenting as cleanly or as well-behaved, but literally because they are pointing out the inconsistencies of U.S. foreign policy and the extent to which the U.S. government and our elected officials are out of step with what the U.S. population wants. Look at all the polls, including the ones that are coming out right now. A majority of of U.S. voters and the vast majority of Democratic voters are all demanding a lasting ceasefire, and most of them want to see U.S. military aid to the Israeli government conditions if not stopped entirely. And yet none of that actually appears on the pages of The New York Times. It treats the Palestine movement and those of us who stand for Palestinian freedom and liberation as though we are somehow an anomaly, when in fact we are the, the vastly growing majority. And another thing, I, I think it also kind of suggests
0: that Jewish Americans have been corrupted essentially by wokeness or by critical race theory or something. And As I've seen you point out elsewhere, that's a misunderstanding of history. You know, that's a misunderstanding of the role that Jewish Americans have played in progressive movements to say that all of a sudden um, folks are critical of the state of Israel.
1: Oh, absolutely. As long as there's been the concept of a state of Israel, there have been Jews that have been leading opposition to it. The American Jewish population, let alone the global Jewish population, is not a monolith, and it never was, and it, it never will be. I mean, and that's one of the things I think that makes the Jewish community so strong is our long cultural and or even historical understanding of ourselves as a place that values debate and introspection and proving your sources and then doubting them and challenging them and researching them and coming back to the discussion and teasing things out over and over again, along with, and this is especially important to the younger generation, I would argue, that are coming up now as young adults, the idea of social justice, of tikkun olam, you know, repairing the world. And, you know, I mean, when I was growing up as a kid, I thought being Jewish meant that my, my grandparents were union supporters and communist activists and that, so I thought that's what meant being Jewish what? And not everyone has that particular background, but so, so, so many of us have absolutely been raised to the idea that that part of what meaning of what it means to be to be a Jew and to, to practice Judaism not just once a week or, or twice a week, but every day, constantly, is this commitment to trying to make the world a better place. And increasingly, like we're seeing right now, that has to include Palestine. That has to include what's happening to Palestinians. But that, to some extent, has always been the case. Um, You know, Jewish Voice for Peace membership ranges from people who are in their first year of college to to people who are, you know, in their 80s and 90s and who have been lifelong committed anti-Zionists. And, you know, if you look back over the history of, of progressive movements in the United States, there have always been people as part of them who are also Jewish. And so this insistence that all Jews support the actions of the state of Israel, right or wrong, I don't think it ever existed. That was never the fact, and it is increasingly not. But it's only now that we're even allowed to exist as a group, according to the New York Times. Like The New York Times spent decades not mentioning our organization's name, using our quotes, but not attributing us as Jewish way for peace members. Mainstream media treats anti-Zionists, and especially Jewish anti-Zionists, as though we're some tiny little percentage of the population. But at the same time, even as back far as polls from 2012, 25% of U.S. Jews thought that Israel was operating as an apartheid state. That was 2012. So, again... There's a the need of corporate media to, to simplify stories down. But then there's also the intentional silencing of voices. And certainly Palestinians have been continually, appallingly silenced in corporate media. And the next up, I would argue, are the anti Zionist Jews who have also been so extensively silenced.
0: Well, and just to add to it, you know, I thought it was... Interesting that Stevens cites Jewish Voice for Peace as having organized or having helped organize a much photographed protest at grand Central terminal, and i that 's a funny way of dismissing as merely performative um, what is in fact mm-hmm. a monumental incredible, powerful action and I think it reads a little bit as desperate that intention to dismiss because things have changed. Things are changing in terms of the relationship of Jewish Americans and, and israel I, th- I think it's that Grand Central Terminal action was incredibly powerful and moving. And I find it interesting that folks would try to dismiss it by saying people took pictures of it.
1: Well, especially given that that's one of over 80 actions that JVP has organized or co-sponsored in the past seven weeks. You know, that would certainly one of the most iconic and was very, of course, intentionally organized in homage to to one of ACT UP's most famous AIDS awareness protests. And, you know, thousands and thousands of people, and then, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of more who couldn't even make it inside, who were protesting outside in solidarity. Chicago had a 1,000 Jews protesting in in their train station. Every city that that across the U.S. had seen protests led by Jews calling for ceasefire. They've also seen dozens more protests by Palestinians, often together with Jews calling for ceasefire. But the numbers are not going down. They're only getting bigger. And, you know, whether it's been inside of the halls of Congress or taking over train stations or taking over bridges or just outside of the district offices of our members of Congress every other day, week in and week out demanding that our elected officials actually represent what their our voters want. We have been on the streets and we have been organizing and, you know, it's seven, eight weeks now and we are not flagging. People call us all the time saying, I live in this city. When's the next action? Our members are coming to us because JVP is, you know, a grassroots organization that is very much member led coming to us saying, what about this location? Can we do something for this? How about that? Like the energy, it's not flagging, even though, you know, seven weeks is a long time in the news cycle. And if anything, people are more committed to it. Of course, the fact is the matter is that the Israeli government is still bombing civilians that are, you know, captive in Gaza and, then, and anything that is going to get worse in the coming days. So we are very much aware of the scale of what is that stake. And I think that also drives us. But the numbers are not flagging. The numbers are only growing. Like we know, I think especially as U.S. Jews, we know what it means when a government uses genocidal rhetoric and then attacks civilians. We know where that leads. And that's, of course, why we are committed to saying never again means never again for anyone. Right. And that includes Palestinians.
0: Well, and i it sounds like a deflection, but it's not, because one of the worries, of course, of conflating, vigorously conflating, life-alteringly conflating anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism, it obscures the real
1: anti-Semitism, you know, that exists. Absolutely. And makes it harder to fight that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's devastating right now watching... As real anti-Semitism is absolutely on the rise, you know, because white supremacy is absolutely on the rise. And the number of attacks that we have seen on Muslims and on Palestinians in this country is, is you know unequivocally on the rise. The attacks on the three Palestinian students in Vermont is atrocious. But instead of you know leading Jewish organizations that, that claim to work on civil rights actually addressing that, they're focusing all of their attention on defending government of the state of Israel so that it can be held accountable for the war crimes it's committing. It's incredibly worrisome. And as part of the larger movement committed to being anti-racist and defending all of our communities and and being in deep relationship with them, we have been saying for, for a while now that the rise of white nationalism is really, really worrisome and that the U.S. government has under certain presidents, certainly embraced it, and under the current president, is not doing enough to fight it. Right. Just like we argue, college campuses have platformed white supremacists numerous times and create incredibly unsafe spaces. And one of the results of that is absolutely the rise of this incredibly terrifying, horrific white nationalist movement that certainly uses anti-Semitism as one of its tools in its toolbox. We can and we will dismantle that, and we do that in solidarity with everybody from the other communities we work with, with our Muslim allies and our Palestinian allies and our Black allies and everybody else that is committed to being in solidarity against white supremacy. But we can't do that nearly as effectively if at the same time we're being continually accused ourselves of something that we're not doing. If these organizations that claim to worry about anti-Semitism really did, then they would stop defending the Israeli government you know, and protecting it from being held accountable for bombing hospitals, and instead allow us all to focus on what we need to do to dismantle white supremacy and the anti Semitism that white supremacy uses.
0: I would love you to talk about what you'd like to see more or less of from reporting, but I want to just reference, as I do that, an interview that I often refer to with Ellen Schrecker, who is an expert in McCarthyism, who says, there's an idea that we went through this period and, you know, it was difficult, but we all lived through it. We we made it through. We made it out the other side. And what she says is, you know what, we didn't all make it through. We didn't all survive. It's not only that people lost their jobs and their livelihoods and their friends, but certain coalitions didn't survive. Certain ideas that were being put into action didn't survive. And we were set back by that mccarthyism in unknowable ways and i think it's relevant here you know there are costs being made here not just that people are being fired for having the wrong opinion or for putting something on facebook but people are being cowed people are who would have marched are not marching because they see the harms What would you say to folks who are maybe a little bit scared about the costs of speaking out at this time?
1: That's an incredibly potent point.
0: Right? You know, like I come back to it all the time because we didn't all make it. It it didn't all work out fine. And I think it's a point that's often lost.
1: And, of course, I think the only way that we can make sure that all of us, make it, right? That all of us come together and all of us are protected is if we are truly all in this together. The doxing of, of students, particularly um, Palestinian and Muslim students, but also Jewish anti Zionist students, the doxing of students is unacceptable and we have to come together and call that out. The response from certain Jewish institutions, legacy institutions in particular, which has silenced and or fired staff for Raising issues about ceasefire, not even necessarily getting into anti-Zionism. All of that has to be called out, and we do it together, and we come out loudly together. And one of the things that Jewish Voice for Peace has always been committed to is building the Jewish community and Judaism beyond Zionism. So with our rabbis and with our Haburah networks and with all of our chapters, we bring in Jewish ritual, we, we embrace the, the teachings of, of, of our movement elders, in order to offer alternative Jewish communal spaces, so that if speaking up for Palestine, if demanding a, cease, a lasting ceasefire, if even articulating that Palestinians who deserve just as many human rights as anyone else, if that is too much for the community that you are currently in, for your family or for your, your Jewish community or whatever, there are other communities that are waiting and welcoming and would love to have you with us. And we are growing and we have the full range of, of Judaism at our fingertips and we are building a Judaism that is not dependent or in any way, in fact, related to the actions of the state of Israel. And I always think back to something that Mohammed al kurd said a few years ago, which was, "Do you think it's hard having these conversations at the dinner table, imagine actually what it's like living a day in the life of a Palestinian. And I think that's something that we all have to hold on to as well, that it doesn't feel great initially to initiate these really hard conversations. And we're here to help, and it's what we're being asked to do, and it's absolutely, I think, the moment to be doing it. The Jewish Voice for Peace and other organizations that are part of the Palestine Solidarity Movement, including If Not Now and others, are offering how to have conversations. We're offering the tools so that when you have these conversations with your friends and your kids you went to summer camp with or your, you know, your kind of, you know, grumpy older uncle, you're not alone in it. And you also know how to do it in a way that we believe leads to everybody actually becoming more informed, more aware, and hearing each other. I mean, obviously, we want to see Palestinian narrative centered more. The fact that there was no Palestinian... Uh, voice on the op-ed pages of any national U.S. paper in the weeks following October 7th was appalling. I'm very concerned about the fact that so much of mainstream TV seems to find it okay to fire their Muslim and Arab anchors and hosts. We just saw that with Nasser Hassan most recently. There's all sorts of context that's continually being ignored. Uh, Why is the fact that the majority of the population of Palestinians in Gaza are all already refugees? Like, how did that happen? Oh, we don't need to talk about that. Well, just the clock just started on October 7th. And of course, the clock didn't start on October 7th. It started 75 years earlier with the Nakba in 1948, at the least. But also, and this is something that I fundamentally can't believe is still happening in mainstream press, corporate media needs to stop repeating the Israeli military's propaganda and talking points and treating it as though it were fact. It is not fact. The Israeli military, for example, didn't tell Palestinians in Gaza to flee from North Gaza to South Gaza, quote unquote, because it was worried about their own safety. It was not worried about Palestinian safety. The Israeli military is bombing civilians daily. There's so many accusations that are made by Israeli officials who are then invited onto talk shows and quoted in newspaper articles as though they are speaking fast, when in fact they are saying incredibly horrible, racist, genocidal things, and none of that is called out. There's a level of accuracy and accountability that corporate media seems to not apply those standards to the Israeli military and to the Israeli government. And it is shocking and a high, high time for you know, very very, you know, we are well overdue for that to no longer be the case.
0: We've been speaking with Sonia Myerson Knox of Jewish Voice for Peace online at jewishvoiceforpeace.org. Sonia Myerson Knox, thank you so much for joining us today on CounterSpin.
1: Thank you. It was such a pleasure to be here.
0: And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find decades of shows and transcripts on our website, fair.org. The website is also the place to learn about and subscribe to our monthly newsletter extra And it's the place to show deeply appreciated support for the show, if you are able and so inclined. Counterspin is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin.